Welcome back to Takes by the Lake from Cleveland.com. I'm your host, Doug LaMaurice. Make sure you're following me on Twitter, at Doug LaMaurice. Get subscribed to Takes by the Lake. Uh, we like to do this every Tuesday. The fact that the Browns played on Monday night this week pushed us back a little bit, so we're getting this out to you on Wednesday morning. Drop some reviews. Haven't had some reviews in a while, and we need more listeners. I want to keep doing this. I got a lot going on. I'm a busy football boy. But uh, on the list of things I do, I really enjoy having a chance to talk Browns with really smart people every week, but, um, but it has to be worthwhile. And I want it to be, and it has been in the past, and, the, and just the, you know, the listenership numbers are down a little bit from last year. Uh, but the Browns are better, so more people should be listening. Maybe there's so much Browns content out there now, you don't have time for me. But um, I'm not threatening to leave, because I wouldn't be threatening very many people right now. But I'm just telling you, you know... If you think it's a decent part of your week, maybe spread the word a little bit so we can ensure that I keep doing this because I love talking to smart people like the two people I talked to today, Brendan Leister and Brent Sobleski, two guys who have been on this podcast before. They are part of my Browns Twitter crew. I feel like I have about, not I, we, we're lucky to have them. There's about 10 to 20 people that I follow for the Browns and for, uh, NFL stuff who check in on the Browns a fair amount that just make me smarter every time I read their tweets or every time I read a story they wrote. And these are two of the guys at the top of that list. So we're going to jump right in. I thought Monday night was okay. I don't love all of Freddie's answers at the moment about the way the offense is coming together. I'm not going to freak out yet. I'm going to lean toward um, reasonable growing pains, working a superstar into the offense. And uh, both uh, Brendan and Brent have some good theories and explanations on what, maybe why Baker Mayfield hasn't looked great so far. So we're talking about mostly Baker Mayfield, some Odell Beckham stuff, some offensive line stuff. We're trying to figure out where the Browns stand right now with, with two of my favorite guys. Drop reviews for Takes by the Lake. Read me at cleveland.com. Check out my other podcast, which is uh, Buckeye Talk with Stephen Means and Nathan Baird every Wednesday and every post game. Uh, we break down Ohio State football. And don't forget Project Text. You can get Ohio State stuff from me a couple times a day straight into your phone. You can get a Brown stuff from Mary Kay Cabot. Go check out cleveland.com. Go to cleveland.com slash Browns. You'll find all the info about how to get these texts for, about the Browns, plus a Browns insider. I broke down the... The snap, when the Browns snapped the ball on every play against the Jets and why the clock was ticking down so much. I put that in Browns Insider this week. It's a special newsletter you get only about the Browns. It's part of your $4 a month subscription for these texts. You also get this daily newsletter where you're getting a separate uh, piece of analysis that, that nobody else is getting on the site. We have a ton of stuff for free on Cleveland.com, but this is bonus stuff you get only with the Browns Insider. So check it out at Cleveland.com, 4 bucks a month. Do the Browns, do Ohio State, do the Indians, do the Cavs. We appreciate your patronage and we appreciate you listening to Takes by the Lake. We're going to run them right together, starting with Brendan Leister, and then we'll go to Brent Sobleski. Brent's interview uh, took place in my car as I was driving um, to Ohio State interviews on Tuesday, so the sound quality there is a, is a step below what we would normally like, but the information is a cut above. Thanks for listening to Takes by the Lake. Joined on Takes by the Lake by Brendan Leister, one of my favorite uh, Browns Twitter follows. I love Browns Twitter. There's so much good stuff out there. I learn. I why I read. I throw myself into the interaction sometimes. So, Brendan, I appreciate you being on Takes by the Lake. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. It's been a while, but I'm excited to talk a little Browns with you finally. 
Man, and it's like it's like a whole new team, brother. It's like, man, I can't remember last time we talked, but it sure wasn't about this. Um, but like Monday night, are you taking are you are you taking away like, hey, they got a win, or are you taking away some questions about um, about the Browns after beating the Jets on Monday? Well, I think anytime you know, anytime you're playing in, in the NFL, you know, it's always tough to get a win, as we've seen over the years. So you always have to be happy that they got a win because it's it's tough every week, but um, I definitely have some questions about what they've done and still some issues with some of the personnel and the way that they're playing right now. Um, but I do obviously feel better than I did a week ago. Uh, I kind of expected to feel that way too, because teams aren't going to have 18 penalties, you know, every single week. So that was obviously going to regress more toward the mean and it did. And, uh, and the jets were really undermanned. So kind of went, Similar to how I expected, but you never really know with the Browns, and it was good to finally see them, uh, you know, show a little bit of that talent they've put on the field and come away with a W. Brendan, is questions about some of the personnel code for Chris Hubbard, or am I just am I too mean to Chris Hubbard? I'm obsessed with with sort of his monumental failures on some plays. I feel like he's okay a decent amount of the time, and then he has mm-hmm. monumental failures. Can you talk me off the Chris Hubbard ledge, or is that an appropriate place to be? Well, I definitely think that he's a below-average starting tackle in the league. Um, I think that they could be doing worse. There there are worse players around the league. I would even argue that uh, just based on you know PFF grades. Um, I do work for PFF as an analyst. Uh, I do like quarterback charting and stuff for them. Um, I would argue that Greg Robinson's actually been worse between worse. the two players the past two seasons. Yeah, when it comes to pass protection. Um, I think the thing that we just didn't always notice with Greg Robinson last year was like on some of those plays where he was getting beat, he would just hold the defender and you know, that, that comes down as a flag, but it's not the, the monumental sack or hit on the quarterback that it might be when Hubbard just whiffs and doesn't hold. But yeah, I mean, clearly both guys are below average and that is a spot that they should look to get better at going into next season. But I think to this point, I would love to see Baker Mayfield get rid of the ball quicker. I think there's been opportunities for him to do that. He's been confused by some uh, pre-snap disguises where the defensive coordinator shows one thing before the snap and then rotates to something else after the snap. And he ends up, you know, holding the ball, checks into a play that maybe would have worked against man-to-man and didn't work against zone, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think Mayfield just hasn't been quite as sharp as he was as last year went on, but hopefully – as the season goes on, hopefully they can get Richard Higgins back. I think he's a big piece of the puzzle for them, especially being so close with Mayfield and having such great chemistry with him. So, um, you know, hopefully as the season goes on, they can really tighten up the past game. He'll start to look sharper, be more confident in his reads, get the ball out quicker, and they can maybe mitigate some of those issues on the offensive line. I don't I don't mean to be obsessed and I'll get off this in a second because I do want to talk about the other stuff. But I was looking at the PFF grades and I think uh, Chris Hubbard had the second lowest run blocking grade of any tackle in week two. And it was one of the lowest of the whole year so far. I thought he had three or four plays where he just whiffed on blocks that sort of like ruined Nick Chubb runs that that if Chris Hubbard would have done his job better, Nick Chubb would have had three or four um, opportunities to to break something off. How 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 bad is like a tackle with he had 
he had a lead on one Chubb block where I feel like he just was out in space and whiffed on two different guys. I don't. I mm-hmm. I thought he had some very public whiffs. Am I making too big of a deal of of the run block whiffs? Um, I would I would say that that's you know that's significant when when you're a team like the Browns that wants to they're showing a, a com- commitment to running the football and they want to run it well and um, offensive line like our uh, grades have shown over the years that offensive line uh, run blocking grade is the biggest thing that you know correlates to run game success. So when he's whiffing on those blocks, that those are going to result in bad plays, you know, negative plays tackles near the line of scrimmage or Chubb is just going to have to work some of his magic on those plays and make guys miss, which isn't probably going to be something that he's going to be able to maintain over time. You know, he did it as a rookie. He made guys miss in the backfield a lot, but doing that year to year, week to week, et cetera, is, is a pretty tough thing to do. So, uh, you know, I agree with you that those, those whiffs are bad and, and it can't happen. And, and as I said, I think that's definitely a spot that they're going to be looking to upgrade at in the off season. Um, he's clearly overpaid. I don't anticipate him being on the team next year. Um, I think they can get out of that contract pretty easily after this season. So um, it's actually a little bit surprising to me that Kendall Lamb didn't have a better chance of winning that spot. But with him, he I think he's actually an even worse run blocker than Hubbard is. So um, the only place that he would have really added some somewhat of an upgrade would have been in pass protection, where I think that he is probably a step up from Hubbard in that area. All right, so I can't I can't get myself off tackles yet. I know Baker's the quarterback, and we'll do some more than that. But the idea that I, it feels like we are two weeks in, we're just accepting the fact that they have two below average tackles. And, and you're making some very good points about what the future is going to look like here. I've had a lot of different discussions with people before the season about the idea of is this just was this just lower on the priority list that John Dorsey couldn't get to everything in the first two off seasons and he just hasn't gotten to tackle yet or or are these mistakes because he did bring in Hubbard as a free agent he did decide to keep Robinson around um, what can we do now though like what what is the solution for the next fourteen games to either um, I mean I guess you're not going to bench him you got to play Greg Robinson and Chris Hubbard how what would you mm-hmm. scheme up or do offensively to try to minimize the fact that both your tackles are below average? Well, there's definitely going to have to be times where they do go, you know, they have a tight end on the field and they, they give those guys help um, in the form of you know, either chipping before they go out into a route um, or double teaming and going max, max protect at times off play action to take those deep shots down the field that we see so often on Sundays around the league with, these deep post-cross concepts, like especially the Rams love doing that. If you watch a Rams game, well, we will see the Rams this week, and I guarantee that they'll run that play probably three or four times, and and they love to do that. So that's an example of something they can do. But I think continuing to mix up the personnel groups is probably something they're going to continue to do. Um, They did more of it on Monday night. I think week one it was tough to do that, um, for one, because they were in such tough down and distances. Um, and also because I just think Demetrius Harris had a really poor preseason and he was continuing to play poorly week one. So they wanted to stay in their best personnel grouping with three receivers on the field with Najoku and Chubb. Um, but yeah, moving forward, hope, hopefully Harris continues to play better. Hopefully Najoku comes back and they can keep using those guys more together because, um, you know, keeping a tight end in once in a while for an extra second to help those guys um, just at the snap of the ball 
even maybe chipping with a back from time to time, although there is evidence that chipping with a back sometimes can lead to negative plays because on those plays, sometimes the tackle will be locked up on the defender and then the running back comes up and it hits him and it'll actually knock the defender off of the tackle leading to a hit. I think we saw that in the preseason on one of the plays where the quarterback got sacked or hit where uh, one of the Browns running backs actually chipped the, the edge defender off of, I think Greg, Greg Robinson's block maybe. So, um, but yeah, there are things they can do. I still think that the biggest thing when it comes to mitigating those pass protection issues is getting Mayfield tight, making sure that he is really confident in the game plan, what he's looking at play to play and getting the ball out on time and not holding it. So uh, that has been a, been a big part of it. I know this, the stats are out there. He's, held the ball, I think, the third longest of, of any starting quarterback. Mm-hmm. There's a part of me, and I know the stats show that he's better when he gets rid of it more quickly. You know, I, I understand holding it some of the time if you're trying to hold it because you're you're trying to make a play. You know, like, I, I, mm-hmm. I get that. And if you're waiting for something to develop downfield or you're, you know, try to, trying to keep something alive, I mean, I think sometimes you have to hold the ball um, in order to let a, a big play develop sometimes. But we all know that Baker Mayfield and this Freddie Kitchens offense are better in rhythm. What, what do you think it is? Why, why is it that it doesn't seem like the rhythm and getting the ball out of his hand is, is happening as much this year? Is it because Freddie is calling a significantly different offense, or is it that things are somewhat the same and, and Baker is just not letting it go? I think the defensive looks have had a big impact on that. You know, all the disguises that these defensive coordinators have thrown at them because I, I watched those final games last year really closely and I didn't see the number of disguises. I think defensive coordinators in the off season, you know, they, they really looked at where Mayfield struggled, I would say, and, you know, studied the film and they probably came away with that, that they need to throw pre pre snap disguises at him and make him confused and, Force him off his first read. I would say that that is probably the biggest thing that they they wanted to do this season. So now we've seen Tennessee and, and the Jets do that, um, and it's just something that he's going to have to grow through and and improve on. And he's going to have to you know, keep watching tape of these defenses and understanding what their disguises look like when they're doing it. Because the more film that you know, it's not only them getting more film on him, it's also him getting more film on NFL defenses and. He's a young quarterback. He hasn't been in the league a long time. So continuing to learn, continuing to grow, um, just developing. I think experience is the biggest thing, and he's still a young player. Um, so I think that's the the biggest thing so far. So um, in this, Brendan, and, I, and the thing that, that I, I just don't have the context on this, I don't know how, how much you do. I, I don't know how to answer this, but which is why I ask. See, I have smart people on. I ask, and I force you guys to answer. So you've heard this from a lot of people, right, that, that that they are throwing looks at Baker that he is not diagnosing and that he's having some trouble with. Would Deshaun Watson or Carson Wentz or Jared Goff or Patrick Mahomes or Lamar Jackson or Mitch Trubisky or any of these other fairly young quarterbacks in the NFL, would they have had similar troubles with the looks that the Titans and the Jets threw at the Browns in the last two games, or or is Baker not as good as some of those guys are uh, in diagnosing some of these things and recognizing what defenses are doing? That's a great question. 
Um, honestly, I haven't looked that closely at what they've been facing the first you know, couple weeks of the season. I haven't seen the number of disguises in some of those games that I've seen from what you know the Titans and the Jets were throwing at the Browns. Um, but it's, it's possible that I, I think at this point that the offense just isn't in rhythm yet with, with the new pieces, like with Odell Beckham being integrated. I, I think that because you asked about Kitchens and the way that he's calling the offense now, I think there is a difference. I mean, they're really trying to feature Beckham and, and they should. I mean, he's, we saw last night how special of a talent he is, but last year they didn't have that at all. It was, um, it was a wide receiver group that was just, you know, a bunch of complementary pieces. So they were mixing and matching, putting them in different spots. And, and they didn't care who, you know, who got a ton of targets as the season went on. Like Landry early in the year was getting a ton of targets. But as the season went on, it was really just, you know, one guy would get four, one guy would get five, this guy would get two. It was, you know, they were really spreading the ball around. They're definitely looking for their rhythm right now. And that's a great question about those other quarterbacks. I think there have been times where, We've seen those other quarterbacks struggle with that stuff. And, and I'm not saying Mayfield's played bad either. I mean, he definitely hasn't. He's the 12th, 12th highest graded quarterback um, in our grades so far this season, tied with Aaron Rodgers. So it's not like he's playing poorly. I mean, you mentioned Mitch Trubisky. I would say that Mayfield blows him out of the water as a, as a young quarterback in the league. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's growing pains, but I think that Overall, we should be very optimistic about Baker Mayfield as an NFL quarterback. There's just just some growing pains right now. I, I, this popped in my head, and so I, I owe it to the podcast audience to say it, but I don't believe it because I refuse to believe that that any part of adding Odell Beckham could be a, a, a negative for this Browns offense. But it just sounded to me like for a second the way you were talking about it. And I'm not saying you're talking about it the wrong way, Brendan, but it reminded me a little bit of like adding Kyrie Irving to the Celtics that like the Celtics Mm -hmm. were this really good young team that kind of shared the ball. And then you added a superstar into it and somehow it did make them worse. But like that's a terrible comparison, right? There's no way that that could have any uh, similarities to Odell Beckham with the Browns, right? I'm crazy, right? Well, it's a great question, but I, I don't think that that's you – know, I definitely don't view it that way. I think that the, the Browns did need that wide receiver that consistently can, – can consistently beat man coverage because you know they were beating a lot of bad defenses as last year went on. I thought that once they played, like, the final, the final drive against Baltimore really stuck out in my mind last season where none of their receivers could beat press man coverage. And you had Mayfield trying to throw Landry open on back shoulder balls, and it just wasn't working. And and that drive just stuck in my brain. I was like, they need a guy like that. They need the stud. You know, I was I was big on DK Metcalf actually before they ended up trading for Odell Beckham. I just I wanted the guy that can beat man coverage, attack the defense down the field, create explosive plays. So I definitely don't view it that way. But I do think it's something where it's an adjustment when you're going from an offense that just spreads the ball around and dinks and dunks. Um, I guess dinks and dunks is the wrong way to put it, but you know what I mean, spreading the yeah. ball around and um, taking their shots down the field uh, sparingly, I would I would say. You know, they were very uh, precise with when they wanted to do that and stuff, where now I would, there's going to be more of those forced chunk plays where they're really trying to get the ball down the field to Beckham because he's just such a special talent. Um, 
it's a good question, but I definitely think that he makes the team better. It's just it's just a different type of offense now, and and Mayfield has to kind of adjust based on that because there's going to be times where instead of throwing to the open man um, or not necessarily, I shouldn't say the open man, but sometimes everybody's covered and he has to just trust that he can throw it up to Beckham and let him go get the ball. And, and that's something that they're going to continue to work through. I do think though, Brendan, in the end, I would be more upset if Odell Beckham had five targets in each of the first two games and they weren't showcasing him. I'm like, I, I like mm-hmm. the fact I'd rather go this way. Absolutely. Maybe quote, force it to him a little bit early and then, you know, hope that it naturally integrates itself. But to me, like the idea of, well, you know what? Odell wasn't open, so we just threw it to uh, Rashard Higgins 12 times would be ludicrous. So I, I'd rather force it and work from there than go the other way. Yeah, definitely. That's why he's the number one receiver. That's that's what you have that guy on your team for is to try to get the ball to him. Like last night, you know, they um, I think Landry, like he saw that it looked like it looked like man-to-man coverage, so he like looked at Mayfield, kind of gave him a hand signal. Mayfield changed the play to a man-beater, and then what happened was the the Jets checked the zone. You know, they were disguising their zone coverage as man, so Mayfield throws this little, I call it a now screen, but it's like a really quick slant where the receiver just runs inside immediately, catches the ball off the line, and it's great against man coverage because it's a pick play, um, and it would have worked, but they were actually in zone, so that inside receiver, inside defender that was over Landry just immediately tackled OBJ at the line of scrimmage once he caught the ball. And and those are those little things that they're going to have to work through where, you know, that's that's a fantastic play against man. Maybe he breaks the tackle and takes it 55 yards if he, uh, you know, if it's man-to-man, but instead the defense was actually in zone and then they had to end up punting, I think. So uh, those are just little things. But I agree with you that getting the ball in that guy's hands is – really good thing <laughs> this this is a segment i like to call teach the podcast host about football so here's my question brendan in that exact situation if, if if baker's getting a hand signal to run this little man beater and then the jets check into a zone then what should baker do in turn like are you is everybody just gonna get stuck there and gr- it's just a great disguise by the jets credit to them or what's the adjustment to the adjustment that Baker or or the receivers could have made in the moment before the snap in that situation? Well, hopefully you have a zone beater on the other side of the field, you know, because usually you don't have two only two routes on the field at once. So hopefully you have something that's good against zone on the other side. Or if if that is not open, he recognizes that it's zone immediately at the snap, which is what he should have done when they didn't run with the receivers is then he holds the ball, extends the play, turns into a scramble drill, and then hopefully he makes something happen, kind of like he did on that play to the Ernest Johnson, where um, I think really early in the first quarter, he, you know, nothing was really open initially, so he scrambled outside the pocket and threw it down the field to him, and it was like a 25-yard gain. So those are those types of plays where, where the holding the ball does have to happen because now the defense has fooled you, um, but that doesn't mean force it to that – that now screen because it's not going to work. So now you hold the ball, extend, and uh, try to make some magic happen, which he's good at doing. I would be happy to let you teach me football all night, Brendan, but I'm going to let you go after two more because I know that you have a life to live. Um, wh- one is – now I, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, oh, the Njoku, Njoku throw, right? That I thought stood out as one where it felt like um, David Njoku was was open across the middle of the field and Baker held it, 
and then rolled out and then threw it late to Njoku and got him flipped and, and he landed on his head and was out for the rest of the game. What what in particular – that to me of all the ones stood out of like, oh, man, he really did seem to hesitate and hold the ball there, and I'm not sure why he did. Yeah, that I agree that he was open prior to that, and he just held the ball. Um, he scrambled out to the right on that play, didn't he? Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah, I thought that on that play – that was an example of one where he could have just hit, I think stayed in the pocket and just hit in the Joker earlier, but that's just something that may feel I've noticed him do that four or five times, at least through the first two games. It's just, you know, not trusting the pocket all the time and drifting or scrambling when he doesn't need to just kind of like feeling ghosts in the pocket. And that's, that's kind of a, a symptom of what we were discussing earlier of the, the offensive tackle play. You know, he's not, He's not trusting his protection all the time the way the way that you would like a young quarterback to be able to do. But um, you, know, you can't have a you can't have stars at every spot. You know, there's going to be some places where you're um, where you're more limited. But hopefully, as as the season goes on, he can continue to trust trust more, trust that guys are going to be in the right spots and just get the ball out on time and not have to worry about extending the play. Because that was definitely an example of one where he passed up on Joku when he was open. And then he kind of threw him to be covered, and it just led to a dis- disastrous result where he, you know, became concussed. And now, who who knows if he'll even play against the Rams? And that's a that's a huge blow if he can't play. All right, last one, Brendan. Um, and again, I, I I'm just gonna throw out the caveat that, you know, the Browns just won, and if they would have lost and they were 0 2, that would have been in really bad shape. They're one and one. They're right in the thick of everything. Um, but this is a privilege. This is a, a high compliment that you win and people are breaking down what's wrong with you because I think everybody understands um, they do need to be better in the five weeks ahead with what's coming. But Brendan, has there anything, is there anything that has happened in the first two weeks of this season that has fundamentally changed how you think about Baker Mayfield or do you still think of him the same way you did at the end of last season and that this, as you talked about already is just one of those things where through the first couple games um, some defensive coordinators have given him some tough looks. I wouldn't say that I have changed my opinion on him, but I do think that there have been things that he's shown that have reminded me more of how he played at Oklahoma. Um, As far as not always trusting the protection, uh, just kind of like, you know, scrambling from clean pockets when he doesn't need to, um, not throwing the ball consistently on time, just stuff like that. I noticed those things when I studied him out of Oklahoma. Um, I wasn't quite as high on him because I just, I had questions about that offense and, you know, there was a lot of open receivers and I kind of struggled with evaluating him coming out of that. But I, I was really surprised by how impressive his pocket presence was last season. And I hadn't seen that from him previously at Oklahoma. I really wasn't as impressed with his pocket presence. And then all of a sudden in the preseason last year and when he came in against the Jets, I was like, wow, this looks like a whole different dude, you know, keeping his eyes downfield all the time, working in the pocket just with subtle movements and stuff. And um, I knew that he could create scramble drills. You know, that was my first impression of him when I saw him all the way back in like 2015. Um, But really working in the pocket, keeping his eyes downfield, that's something that I hadn't seen so as much of at Oklahoma, especially working in muddy pockets, because I had a lot of clean ones at Oklahoma. But I think, you know, against, against Tennessee, especially, and, and then it continued into last night, there was more of that where he just wasn't trusting the protection as much and showing some of those bad habits that I thought that he had at Oklahoma. Um, 
which is weird because I, I really thought that he cleaned that up last season. And just the way that he was so decisive last season was really impressive to me for such a young quarterback. And I don't, I don't see that level of decisiveness, um, not even close to that level of decisiveness yet this, this year. But hopefully he can get there by week eight, week nine. I have thought that too, Brendan, just the idea of, and I don't watch it with the same eye you did, but uh, he has seemed to scramble out of some clean pockets that again, for as much guff as the tackles have gotten and, and deservedly so to a large degree, there are also times where it feels like he's getting out of there and it's sort of like, well, that, that wasn't that bad. I thought you could have hung in there for another second or two and tried to make a play, but it, it does feel like he doesn't have that faith. Yeah, definitely. And that was something that I felt he did, you know, in college more. And so I will be watching that really closely as the season goes on. Um, I still feel good about him, though. I don't – my opinion of him hasn't changed. It actually – I'm still just so impressed that he showed that level of pocket presence last season that it, it just makes me more confident that he can get back to that level. So um, I'm just looking forward to whenever he does that again. Brendan, tell the good people uh, where they can follow you and how they can uh, keep up with you. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Brendan Leister. Um, I write articles for USA Football, like X's and O's, uh, football-related stuff, uh, more so in the off-season. Uh, during the season, I um, I coach football at Avon High School. I'm a quarterback's coach there, and uh, I also do work for Pro Football Focus. I chart quarterbacks and chart coverages for NFL games and college games. He's a tremendous Twitter follow, folks. If you cared all about the Browns and cared all about smart football, I would uh, definitely give Brendan Leister the highest uh, recommendation. So, Brendan, love talking with you. Appreciate you making uh, time in your busy, busy week here during football season. And uh, hopefully we'll get you back soon here on Takes by the Lake. Yeah, thanks, Doug. I always love talking to you, and uh, have a good night, man. All right, we're doing this interview as I drive in my car because sometimes in a busy football season, that's the way you got to do it when you want to talk to some of the smartest NFL people out there like Brent Sobleski, who just was giving me some great information. Find him on Bleacher Report. Really good at this stuff. Brent, you just dropped some knowledge on me about Baker Mayfield that I think maybe should make Browns fans a little nervous for next week, but maybe should ease their mind in the scheme of things, what are you talking about with these defensive coordinators that the Browns are facing early in the season? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's always done. Second of all, when you look at where Cleveland stands and who their opponents have been through two weeks, they have those opponents had experienced defensive coordinators with DPs of Tennessee Titans and Greg Williams of the New York Jets combined. And this is not including their defensive head coaches or position coaches, just with those two as defensive coordinators in the NFL. They have 31 combined years of defensive coordinator experience. Next on the docket is Wade Phillips, who's 23 years of defensive coordinator experience. Again, that's Sands, position coach, head coaching stints, and everything along those lines. So basically what I'm saying is this. He is facing legitimate play callers who know how to disguise, confuse, and attack weak points in an offense. And they're doing that and because they've seen the film on Baker from last year, and they're trying to uh, trying to exploit where they thought he had deficiencies. And so it's become it's coming now to the forefront. These smart minds are game planning against him. 
I thought last night, Brent, that, that clearly we saw the times when Baker hesitated, but he still had his moments when he'd rip it. He ripped some throws, not just the 89-yard touchdown to Odell Beckham. He made some other big throws. Um, it, it doesn't seem to me like all is lost, but it does just seem like you. It, this is a second-year quarterback who's still in the learning process, and, and snap to snap is seeing some things that, like he's never seen before, right? How much of this do you think is normal? And, you know, even with the caveat of this, that great point you just made, is this mostly normal or are there things in there that you would look at a second-year quarterback and be a little bit concerned about the way he does seem confused at times? Well, it's on the job training. I mean, let's be perfectly honest. As excited as everyone was from his play from as a rookie, and rightly so, there's still times when he's going to be confused. There's still going to be times when he hasn't seen everything. And that when they, uh, according to the defensive coordinator, as I mentioned, disguises and completely fools him. And that happened in multiple instances just last night with, with Greg Williams. But the positive is this. You mentioned the Odell Beckham 89-yard touchdown run. That was a check with me at the line of scrimmage pre-snap from Baker to Odell. That was a designed run play turned into an RPO because of the coverage that they saw that turned into a gigantic play. So there are instances where we can take what Baker and Mayfield is doing pre-snap and see positive growth. Now, it needs to continue, and that learning curve has to continue to progress in an upward fashion because there are times when he's not seeing things properly and it slows it slows his ability to read the defense and to deliver the ball accurately. So, for example, last night with Greg Williams, he consistently drops seven to eight defenders into zone coverage. And that really, for lack of a better term, constipated the offense because what this is built around essentially is Bruce Arians' scheme. That's what Freddie Kitchen wants. And then you have Todd Monkey coming in with the airbeat principles to sprinkle in as well. The whole purpose of, the, of those two schemes is to push the ball downfield and create chunk plays. Baker Mayfield is a gunslinger. He wants to take those big risks every single time. And what we'll see the biggest growth, growth hopefully in the next few weeks is starting to take just what's given to him, checking down, make the easy throws when they're available before the game a couple days before what I wrote over the weekend was about them still trying to find a way to, to maximize Odell Beckham I like the idea that they're looking for him and I don't think they should just be spreading the ball around equally he's among the top guys in the league in targets and to me that's the way it should be I like Baker taking some risks at times you, you have to try to make some big plays to Odell in my mind and if every now and then you take a sack or throw a pick, I think that's a reasonable trade-off. And I understand that Baker is holding the ball maybe sometimes, but those tackles still, to me, have to hold up enough to give them a chance to maximize Odell. Tell me where I'm wrong in there. Tell me what makes sense, and where do you think they are sort of on the pathway toward maximizing Odell Beckham the best they can? I don't believe you are wrong, Doug. And to me, we've, we've had this archaic viewpoint where a balanced offense is 50% run and 50% pass. And that's no longer how the league operates or, or football at all, at any level. I love what Mike Leach often says about being balanced. It's about getting the ball in the hands of your playmakers as often as possible. And that's the reality. Yes, you have Jarvis Landry. Yes, you have Nick Chubb. And yes, you have David Njoku when he's not falling you know, on his head. But it, you want to make the focal point of your 
offense Odell Beckham Jr. because of what he creates opportunities for others. Once you start getting in a rhythm with him, then now the defense starts rolling coverages over the top. Now you're starting to see double teams. And what they can do is some of the things we saw initially last night, I thought there was an improved game plan overall against the Jets that when there was concerns about 11 personnel, and everyone knows the statistic this week, 92% of their snaps against the Titans were 11 personnel. That's one running back, one tight end, and three wide receivers. That's based on the roster and its construction. It makes sense to have those guys all on the field at that time, but it also comes down to being creative. And so now to protect those offensive tackles, for example, and not leave them on an island, last night we started seeing tight ends being left in protection. We saw running backs with different protection schemes. We saw um, more play action, things of that, line, of that ilk that can allow you to protect Baker while still pushing the ball down the field and getting it to Odell Beckham Jr. Also moving him around the formation. He can be your, he's technically your starting X receiver. He just did some of the biggest damage last night out of the slot. You see him in motion. And so you continue to build on these things, and I think it will make the offense more effective long term. I've loved and been intrigued by the 11 personnel debate here in the first two weeks. Clearly, when you look at the roster, Jarvis Landry, Odell Beckham, and Rashard Higgins are three of their best skill guys, and I understand why you would want them on the field. With Higgins being out last night, it certainly made it more palatable to go 12 personnel more more often because that third receiver you're putting out there is not the quality of Rashard Higgins. Do you think that they should continue to do more 12 personnel stuff, even when Rashard Higgins is healthy? Or do you think they'll be like, no, you know what? He's good. We want him out there. What is that balance going to be like when Higgins is back? Well, I just wanted to be more creative in what we see because what made Brady Kitchen the head coach of the Cleveland Browns wasn't necessarily because he was brilliant using 12 or 13 personnel, which he was, but it's because his creativity within those looks. And so when you get to a point when you realize you have better personnel with three wide receivers on the field, now it comes down to placing them in a position to succeed. I know that's cliche, but that's that's what the job entails as a head coach. And we've seen some struggles. And so it comes... It really, to me, is how you utilize that personnel. So at times last night, for example, I thought there was one instance where you saw Jarvis Landry come in motion and then line up in a D-bot. And it was just as a decoy. But now later in the season, you can use that as, as a setup for big plays or getting the ball in Landry's hands, either as a runner, maybe as a passer, and so on and so forth. It's those little things, those little nuances that you have to continue to add to the offense to make it more effective, while at the same time trying to hide the deficiencies within your scheme and your personnel, which is obviously offensive tackle. So to me, again, it was a big step forward last night. Yes, we saw more 12 personnel, even some 13, but the protection was better overall because of how they changed up their approach. And it didn't necessarily have to be the personnel grouping. It was simply protection schemes, sliding the Chris Hubbard side consistently, giving him chips, keeping the tight end. And these are the things you can still do on 11 personnel, but now I'll protect the issues you had that was on display during week one. Do you see some push and pull between what Freddie Kitchens wants to run and what Todd Monken wants to run? Should those two ideas be able to sort of fit seamlessly together and and accentuate each other or do you see anything that's happening so far that they're still trying to figure out how to how to cram some of their um principles together to make the best offense 
obviously this initially you can see that they're further along in year two of their development with instead of being with a rookie quarterback since the Giants just announced Daniel Jones as their starting quarterback sorry I had to drop it in I saw I saw it coming through my timeline as we were speaking so hot times in New York baby woo breaking news breaking news so you know when you're looking at the way that these two need to coexist it's, it's very simple to me this is Freddie Kitchen's baby, and it's Todd Monkey who has some influence, but he's not calling the play. And so, so many want to take what we saw last year and assume that's the basis of what Kitchens wants to be as a play caller and head coach, but that's not necessarily the case. As stated earlier, his roots are built based on that Bruce Arian vertical passing attack. And if anyone who wants Bruce Arians, whether it's all the way dating back to Kelly Holcomb and the Browns, through the Pittsburgh Steelers, Indianapolis Colts, Arizona Cardinals, or now the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, he consistently has the deep drops, the lack of protection, and the quarterback getting beat up. That's just the reality of the way Bruce Arians approaches offensive football. And now we're seeing some of that with, with Freddie Kitchens. That's where he wants to have the foundation of his offensive approach. And so I can't say necessarily that Munkin's a negative influence because I see so much of what he stated openly he wants to do within how they've started this season. They want to be a pass first offense. They want to create jump plays. They want to get vertical. It just depends on how you set up those plays and sequential play calling to make them effective. I think the underlying thing here, Brent, maybe for some Browns fans, and maybe not, is some of this off-season stuff that, that Bob Wiley said, sort of implying that some of the other assistants uh, had a lot to do with the offensive success in the second half of last year, and, and they aren't back, and now Freddie Kitchens is in charge. What At what point would you maybe wonder, hmm, maybe there was something to that? Would there be what, – what, how many games into this – would you start to have some questions about Freddie Kitchens as a play caller? It's, certainly it's not two games in, but w- what would you like to see from Freddie continuing to evolve, continuing to get back to being more creative, and, and at what point will you start scratching your head? Well, I think we have uh, uh, a stretch of games to watch how this team is going to perform against the best competition, and it, it could be absolutely brutal. I mean, let's let's be honest. When you got the Rams coming up next, you're, you're basically your next five opponents are ten and zero combined to start the year. That's difficult. That's, that is going to show how good this team really is from that perspective. You go from Los Angeles to one of the best defenses in the NFL, Baltimore Ravens, the surprise San Francisco Forty Niners. On the road against the Seattle Seahawks, who's a very good NFC team. Now, once you get to week seven and you're in that bye week facing it, about to face New England Patriots, I think that's where you start to get a realization of who this team really is. Now, the back end of the schedule is much easier, there's no denying it whatsoever, but adversity shows exactly how good you really are. And so, when you get through this gamut of difficult scheduling. We'll find out real quick who the Cleveland Browns really are, especially on the offensive side of the ball. When you have Wade Phillips, you have that number one Ravens defense. When you have Pete Carroll's defense, when you have Bill Belichick scheming against you, how good can you really be and how will you progress? And that will show, to me, exactly where we stand as Freddie Kitchens, not only as a play caller, but how he handles everything as a head coach. 
Last one, Brett, and I appreciate your time. I'll, then I'll let you get back to the world where Daniel Jones is now a starting quarterback in New York City. Do you? Do, by the way, do you think the Giants should now trade Eli Manning to the Jets so the Jets have a starting quarterback instead of having to run Luke Falk out there? Wouldn't that be a great I'd deal? I'd rather start Luke Falk. <laughs> That's, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, at this point, if he managed career, it costs too much, and he's not effective, so I might as well go with the cheaper alternative. Wow, that is some hot. That is some hot Eli hate. I love it. Oh my god, that was so good. All right, so last one here. I've made a lot of comparisons. A lot of people have. It's just interesting to me. Freddie Kitchens with the Browns and Ryan Day with Ohio State. Both guys who got the head jobs based on their offensive play calling. Both former quarterbacks. Both keeping the play calling duties while being a first-time head coach. You see a lot of coaches at both levels early on in being a head coach, they want to keep that because it's fun. It's what made them great. It's why they got the job. I understand they don't want to give it up. But over time, a lot of guys, once they establish their system, they'll often bring in a play caller to run what they want to run, but they aren't tasked with the down-in, down-out play-calling duties. How hard do you really think it is? Ryan Day has looked great so far, but Ryan Day has been playing lousy college teams. Freddie Kitchens is trying to win in the NFL. How would you describe how hard in your mind it really is to be a head coach and the offensive play-caller in the NFL? On delegation is the hardest part of the transition for any assistant going into the head coaching status. So, I often refer to Romeo Cornell as the perfect example, someone that's in a great position, a coach or coordinator, but he just doesn't have the mental makeup or, or or leadership necessary to be a CEO of an entire organization. We saw that twice in Cleveland and Kansas City, and so we're still trying to figure that out with Freddie Kitchens. By taking on the play-calling duties and, and retaining them, I should say, that you add to your responsibilities. And so, to me... It comes down to how good are his hires. We understand Todd Munkin's not the main play caller in offense, but now you start looking towards the defense and Steve Wilkes, and he was really the great unknown in this entire equation. And the reason I state that is this. He had one year as a defensive coordinator before he became the head coach of Arizona. And once he took over Arizona, Al Holcomb, who, by the way, is now the Browns linebackers coach, called the defensive plays, and the entire unit and coaching staff struggled to adjust the talent found on the roster. So how is Wilkes going to be able to handle the entirety of that side of the football while Kitchens concentrates on the other? If it, and now that he delegated that to Wilkes, that falls on the coach's head coach's shoulders. And if they struggle at any point, and Wilkes may turn out or may not to be a bad hire, this is a, this is the situation Kitchens must face because now he's the one in charge and he's the one driving that bus, and now he's the one everyone has to answer to. And that's really what makes it difficult for me to see how he's going to go from being that position position coach less than a year ago into the head man in charge, now trying to delegate duties and do so effectively. All right, I'm going to squeeze one more in it. And the thing here, Brent, that's what I wrote after the game, is the Browns just won, and we're talking about a lot of issues with them. That is what happens when you have talent and expectations, and it is a, it is a compliment to me to have a team where you win and you say, great, you won, but that's not really what it's about. It's how are you going to win the next five against teams that are all 2-0? and How are you going to get better at the things that you need to do in order to beat better competition? So I hope people aren't listening to this and getting angry. I hope they're getting they're listening to this and realizing this is what it's like to have a winning and, and competent and talented football team. Do you think there is any possibility that at some point this year, 
Freddie Kitchens would hand over the offensive play calling to Todd Monken, or would that shock you? It would shock me at least at this juncture, simply because we know how stubborn Freddie Kitchens is. <laughs> Second of all, he has been adamant that this is his offense and that he's one that's going to be calling plays. But at the same time, he understands it's a collaborative effort, and there is certainly input from Todd Monk, and there's input from the uh, Dave Camp or Camp, I almost said uh, Dave Camp with James Kiffin as their offensive line coach, run game coordinator. You know, so it, it is a, an effort from the offensive staff. With that said, it, this is, Kitchens knows this is what got him where he, where he is, and he's going to continue to make those calls throughout the year. Now, if they become successful, the benefit of that is Todd Monk is likely looking at a head coaching job next year, and then you won't have to make a transition from that point of view. If not, if Monk is still there, then now you can start ceding a little bit of those responsibilities to him and allow him to take over more of the responsibility. So, you know, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, but I think that could work out for the kitchen's favor either way. Brent, I, I love your take on the Browns and the NFL. Tell the people again where they can follow you and where they can read you. I go ahead and read my work at Bleach Report. You can follow me on uh, on Twitter at Brent Sobleski. I know, unoriginal. Uh, I also have a podcast with two of my BR colleagues, Brad Gagno and Gary Davenport, Davenport, called Pro Football Fire, which can be downloaded on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, et cetera, et cetera. So please tune in and enjoy us blathering on about football because it's what we love to do. My highest recommendation for anything that Brent does, make sure you're checking out his work and listening to him. We love having you on. We appreciate you making time. And I hope we can talk again down the road. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Brent. And that's it for Takes by the Lake. My apologies to Brent for that. Um, that was louder than I thought it would be. You could probably hear in that interview when I got to McDonald's uh, and I wasn't driving anymore. Um, so we'll have Brent back on sooner than later. We wanted to have him back on anyway, but he deserves a better sound quality than I offered him there. He's so smart. Brendan's so smart. Highly encourage you guys to give them both a listen. I appreciate you guys hanging with Takes by the Lake as we try to Continue to analyze this Brown season in interesting ways. We may check back in with the Indians at some point. Again, I have a I have somebody who's a really interesting interview that'll be more of a personal interview um, that we've agreed to, and now we just have to figure out when the timing can work. But hopefully we'll get to that soon. And again, thanks to you guys for listening. For now, I'm Doug Maurice. That's Takes by the Lake, and we will talk to you next time. <laughs>